Hey y'all, welcome to Hollerback. This is season three, episode two. I'm Billy Deverks. And I'm Stacy Fugit. And today we are here with Dr. Edward Sloan. Um, we're really excited to have him on with us. And we're going to talk a little bit about religion in Appalachia. Um, so Dr. Sloan, first and foremost, we always want to thank you um, and all of our guests for taking the time out of your busy day to be with us and just, you know, hang out and talk a little bit about the place that we love so much and highlight all the positives of the area. Um, and, you know, first we always ask, you know, tell us about yourself. And, you know, we came to know you through Dr. Engel, but also we, as we've done research on you, we figured out that, we, that you were involved with the Catholic Committee of Appalachia. So how did you get there? Where are you from? And how did you land where you are? Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for reaching out and thanks for having me. I'm uh, excited to talk a little bit about the work that I do and the work that Catholic Committee of Appalachia does. So I grew up in Wheeling, West Virginia, um, and I've had various different roles with uh, the Catholic Committee of Appalachia. Got involved with them just by being a Catholic young person who was passionate about my faith in the Appalachian region and what it meant to be an Appalachian Catholic. And uh, so currently I serve as the board chair for CCA. Um, also, uh, I'm steering our anti-racism task force, which we uh, launched uh, actually at the start of this year um, in, in response to the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and and just asking ourselves what the implications of that are for our region. Um, I also currently work in campus ministry at Villanova University. I coordinate service and immersion programming there. Uh, a lot of those come to the Appalachian region, so I get to show off a place that I love to students who are less familiar with the region. Uh, and then finally, um, completed a PhD from Boston College in theology and religious education last fall. That's awesome. Um, how is the anti-racism task force coming along? I think that um, that's an awesome project. Tell us a little bit more about that real quick. Yeah, uh, it, it's coming along great. Um, you know, I think you know one of the things that, that we're starting with is kind of get doing some of our own work, right? Getting in touch with how we as, as a majority white organization enter into work that's already being done in Appalachia to address white supremacy and racism. Uh, so, you know, one of our goals is to, to listen and learn, to kind of do some of our own internal work, to look at our organization, to understand um, where our organization, how our organization might, you know, kind of unintentionally, you know, reinforce a culture of supremacy in the region. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's, you know, we're in the beginning stages of that process um, of thinking critically um, and trying to move toward allyship. But it's exciting. It's important work for the region. Uh, Absolutely. It's work for the Catholic Church. So, we've been doing a lot of research about the Catholic Committee of Appalachia, and we're all interested in hearing about what the overall mission is and a general overview of what this nonprofit does. If you could talk a little bit about that, that'd be wonderful. Yeah. Hold on. I have the, I want to make sure I get our mission statement right. So, hold on a second. Uh, yeah. So, we define ourselves as a, a grassroots faith-based network raising a prophetic voice of justice for Appalachia and her people. So in terms of describing the work that we do and how we live into that mission, I think maybe one of the best ways to, to approach it would be to break it down, right? So, uh, and I might start to kind of go off on tangents here, so feel free to interject, but, uh, but, you know, just to kind of focus on this idea of grassroots, you know, um, so Catholic Committee of Appalachia emerged uh, in 1970. Um, and it was part of the commission on, or grew out of, I guess, the commission on religion in Appalachia, which had already, which was already functioning and was an ecumenical network. So it was various churches doing ministry and social justice oriented work in the region. And the Catholics who were involved with CORA said, well, you know, Catholics should have our own separate organization doing this work to connect Catholics who were passionate about social justice. Um, and so CCA emerged out of that. And to some extent, this idea and this desire to have a Catholic group doing this work, a ground of what in the history of global Catholicism, a major event called the Second Vatican Council, um, which was 
happened in the mid 60s, 1962 to 1965. And it was an effort uh, of the church to reconsider its approach to being church in the world. And so, you know, two major things happened uh, at Vatican II that I think shaped what CCA did. Um, you know, one was this idea of kind of opening the windows of the Catholic church uh, to kind of let some fresh air, some fresh ideas in. The church had typically been a very defensive organization that was kind of closed off to the world beyond the church. Uh, that was one big thing that changed. The other big thing that changed was a more increased an increased role for the laity, that is people who aren't priests or religious uh, in the life of the church, um, to kind of go out and be the church in the world, to be active in the life of the church. And so Catholics were really responding to that and asking, how do we live the church in our everyday lives in the world around us? Um, and so this idea of a church that comes from the grassroots became really significant. And it was particularly women religious that played a big role in that. Y'all may have be familiar with the Glen Mary religious sisters. So the Glen Marys had a mission role to Appalachia, to the Appalachian region. That was particularly what they were focused on. Um, and rather than come in and try to fix mountain people, um, Glen Marys took this approach of listening to people, listening to their concerns, what was on their mind. It wasn't trying to convert people but to build relationships with people. And the projects and the things that the Glen Mary sisters undertook were all things that were the expressed needs of people who they were building friendships with and building relationships with, the communities that they were beginning to call home. And it's led to, kind of, I'll, I'll kind of wrap up this piece here, but it kind of led to um, a very radical uh, approach to, to ministry that, um, and actually there, um, Glenn, Glenn Schmidt, who's a, a Glen Mary priest, ma male priest, says um, he defined the Glen Mary religious sisters as a threat to the church, that they were doing some really radical um, kind of ministry that um, challenged the hierarchical male-centered uh, church and priesthood. And so there was a really an effort to rein their ministries in. Um, to kind of limit what they could do. So Glenn, many of the Glen Mary women left the Glen Mary Sisterhood. They started their own organization called Federation of Communities and Service, FOCUS. Um, and they continued the, the ministries that they were doing, but as lay women. So they continued this grassroots approach and many of them ended up, and this was before CCA was formed, many of them joined CCA and had an integral role in CCA's founding. So that grassroots approach continues to inform the work that we do. Um, when I say that we're faith-based, you know, it's, you know, our work is inspired by the tradition of Catholic social thought. It's inspired by the gospels. Um, it's not so much communicating what the church teaches in this top-down authoritarian way, but because we believe in a church that comes from the people, that comes from the grassroots, you know, one of the phrases that we use in CCA is this idea of being the church that we wish to see in the world. So when we listen to people, uh, when we open ourselves to the Holy Spirit, and uh, we discover what it means to be church in new ways, ways that we haven't thought of before. Um, when I say prophetic, you know, there's this idea that, um, to be churches, to be a force for justice, to be a force for liberation from oppression in the world. And sometimes that even means speaking critically to the institutional church, as CCA has often done around issues of racism, LGBTQ justice, um, extractive industry, all of these things. It means speaking prophetically both to the church and to Appalachia. You know, sometimes as Appalachian people, we get these things wrong too. We don't want to have a romanticized view of the region. And so we speak to our communities, we speak to our church in a prophetic way. And our focus, our concern is Appalachia, not only Appalachia as a source of insight for the rest of the world. Um, in, in 1975 letter that CCA put out, the document called This Land is Home to Me, we said that the story of Appalachia is judgment on all of us. When we look at the poverty, um, that is a result of ec economic exploitation um, in the region. When we look at the way in which extractive industries contributed um, to climate change, you know, the story of Appalachia is judgment on unjust 
socioeconomic structures. So we keep that in mind too. So when I was doing research, I found a, a book and um, it's, it was credited to a Catholic committee of Appalachia. The telling takes us home, taking our place in the stories that shape us. So does what you just said kind of tie into that book? Yeah, so CCA, one of the projects that CCA has undertaken throughout its history is the writing of these, they call the Catholic tradition, we call pastoral letters. Now, a pastoral letter is something, so a, a bishop, a pastor is a shepherd, right, is, is the meaning of that word. And the bishops of a specific Catholic diocese have a teaching function, right? So they offer these things called pastoral letters. They're to kind of guide and inform the faithful, right? Um, so CCA had the idea, um, again, in the early days of its history, in the early 70s, 1973 was when the process for the first one started. Um, CCA had the idea, well, what if we did a pastoral letter um, for the Appalachian region? And this was unique because typically a single diocese, for example, the Diocese of Wheeling Charleston, which covers the whole state of West Virginia, a diocese is a region of the Catholic church, sort of an administrative unit, if you want to use like, you know, like technical language or whatever, um, is an administrative unit of the church. Um, so typically a single bishop would issue a pastoral letter um, or a group of bishops such as the, the United States bishops would issue a pastoral statement as a body. But it was kind of unique for the bishops of a region to issue a statement. Well, the Catholic, the CCA wanted to do a, a pastoral letter that didn't follow the typical pattern where, you know, the church's teaching was communicated from the top down, where the bishops communicated to the people what the Pope and the people above him were saying, right, which is typically how it would happen in this trickle down fashion. CCA, again, being this grassroots organization said, what if we would write a pastoral letter that was primarily authored by the people? So CCA conducted a series where they call listening sessions. Um, there's a methodology in theology that is called see, judge, act, right? Where you observe, you listen, you pay attention to what's going on. You do some critical investigation, you know, thinking critically, interrogating what you're hearing, um, and then responding, acting in light of those two steps, right? So CCA said, well, what if we would follow that method to author a pastoral letter? So a series of listening sessions were held across the region. Um, and then after the fact, bishops were asked to sign it, right? So it was kind of teaching in the opposite direction, where rather than the bishops teaching um, Appalachian people, Appalachian people were teaching the bishops. And then bishops were a part of the conversation we're reviewing the drafts, commenting on the drafts. So there was some mutuality in the process, um, but the people kind of took the lead in writing that document. Um, so that was 1975 that the first one came out. Um, in 1995, a second document uh, called At Home in the Web of Life. Oh, gosh, I've got the, uh, this is the edition of the first two right here. Um, so the second one came out, followed the same process. The first one, This Land is Home to Me, focused primarily on the coal industry and extractive industry in the region. Um, the second one in 1995 focused specifically on um, sustainable economic development in the region. And then in 2015, we said, well, it's been 20 years. Maybe we should do another one. So I was involved in uh, the drafting of the 2015 one. Um, and I, I commented on drafts and assisted in the process, but um, same, pro same process. We held these listening sessions across the region. You know, the one difference is kind of last point I'll make, the one difference with the 2015 one that made it really unique was that we didn't seek the bishop's signatures for that one. Um, you know, the, the, the Catholic bishops in the 1970s this might shock you, were a little more progressively minded, particularly around economic issues. Um, and that many bishops were supportive of what CCA was doing. And it wasn't a stretch of the imagination to get them to sign on to something like this. Um, in fact, the process influenced how other um, documents were written by bishops later, right? Bishops started to adopt this method of doing listening sessions inspired by the work CCA was doing. Well, 
the Catholic bishops in the church today are much different than they were in the 1970s. And we were not confident that the bishops of Appalachia would sign on to a project like this. So there's an idea in Catholic theology called in, in Latin, the technical term is the census fidelium, which that's a fancy theological word for it, but it just means the sense of the faithful. It means that the Holy Spirit is active in everybody's life and that God speaks to each of us. And so we can take our experience, we can reflect on our personal experience and experience of our community in light of our faith, and that we have something valuable to say to the church because of that. So CCA said, well, let's exercise the sense of the faithful. And that particularly people on the margins speak, the Bible tells us, speak with a unique authority. Um, and that that authority has something special to say about God's wishes for us in the world. So we kind of took those ideas and ran with them. And so we're not going to seek the bishop's approval on this. We're going to say what needs to be said. We're going to lift up the voice of Appalachia's people, particularly the most marginalized of Appalachia's people. So we focused on voices that um, that we don't always hear in Appalachia. Um, we focused on the voices of Black Appalachians, of Indigenous folks, of LGBTQ folks, of women. Um, we allowed them to share their stories of what it is like to be them in this place of Appalachia. Um, we allowed them to speak to the church about their joys, about their frustrations. Um, and we allowed them to talk to us about what needs to be done to make the church in Appalachia and our communities in Appalachia more just places. Yeah, and I think that that goes back to what you said about all Appalachians want is not for someone to necessarily come in and save them, but rather someone form a relationship with them. Um, and, you know, when you said be the church you wish to see in the world, I like that really hit home for me because I think that for so many people, especially mine and Billy's age, they think that the church is such a judgmental place, you know, um, and I think that it's kind of gotten um, a bad rap in, you know, in some instances, but, um, and that kind of leads me to my next question because I know that I've been in a place where, you know, growing up in the Bible Belt, growing up in, you know, a somewhat religious family, and like not having those ideas pressed on me, but just like, you know, you, you grow up in that. And so, but when you get older, you kind of start to think, okay, well, what do I believe? What do I believe outside of what my parents instilled in me, you know? Um, so I know that I've been through that, but how has religion impacted your life? And like, did you go through that in any sort of way? Or were you kind of just always sure of Catholicism? Because I know that you said that you grew up Catholic as well. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was similar to you. You know, I was, you know, raised in a household where, you know, that was, that was Christian and specifically Catholic. I went to Catholic schools uh, all my life. And, you know, for me, it didn't, I'll tell you a story of how, where it started to, to sink in and then how, maybe how that even influences, you know, the, the work that I do now. But, um, you know, I was involved with my youth group, you know, through my church and all that. And, I had a few friends that went that were involved with it, which is why I went. They have more to do with just spending time with my friends. I wasn't particularly religious. Um, and so then, you know, um, we had this summer camp that was coming up uh, through our through my youth group. And my mom was really pressing me to go to, to this camp. And I did not want to go to it. Uh, it was a weekend summer and my closer friends were not planning to go to it, did not want to go to Jesus camp and miss out on a week of summer with, you know, friends. And so I really resisted going to it. And, um, but my mom kind of kept on, you know, and sometimes moms are like this and they kind of know what you need. And so she forced me to go to it. Even she packed my suitcase um, even because I was, I figured, well, if I don't pack my suitcase, you know, I won't have to go. Well, she packed it for me. She put it on the bus she somehow got me on the bus and shipped me away. And so, I mean, you know, you probably kind of guess where the story is going, but I had, you know, one of the best weeks in my life and just really fell in love with that space. And really what it was, was again, at, at that time, it had less to do with the religious aspects of it. I still wasn't that interested in that. And even particularly in high school, 
I was not interested in, in religion. Um, you know, I, I, you know, was very kind of very hostile to it. I was very, I was very passionate about social justice though. But then I think that religion offered much in the way of that. I thought it was more of a hypocritical space. But what I kept coming back to was this experience of summer camp where it was a community where I felt that I was really radically accepted for who I was. I didn't have to pretend to be something I wasn't. That the people who I met there, who I knew there, uh, loved and accepted me for who I was. Um, and that was really refreshing because that's hard to find when you're a middle schooler or in high school, and especially when you don't kind of really run with the dominant crowd, which I didn't. Um, so I just, I kind of felt like I could be myself there. And so this idea of community and relationship, you know, I think have become sort of central themes in my own work as a theologian. Um, you know, they say that theology, which literally means God talk or talk about God, there's a classic definition of it that defines theology as faith seeking understanding, right? Um, which strikes me as a very solitary and very in your head activity. So I've kind of defined, I've started to define theology as faith-seeking belonging, right? That I think all of us want, you know, developmental scientists say that um, the most fundamental human need is belonging. Um, you know, and you were talking about um, just as you grow up, you're trying to figure out things for yourself and you're trying to find a place where you feel accepted and feel included and feel welcome. And why I experienced that, um, at least in the church communities that I found, the Catholic Church, and as, as we've discovered recently with the recent Vatican statement regarding blessing of same-sex marriages, um, the church often fails in its ideals. But, you know, what I have discovered in scripture, what I've discovered at the grassroots of the church are these spaces of radical belonging. Um, and so for me, it's always been that struggle. And I got that in the in CCA as well. You know, when when I first read is in high school, the This Land is Home to Me, the, the document I mentioned earlier, it came out in 1975. You know, I was kind of blown away by it because I had never heard of anybody talk about um, religion as something that could respond to social justice and in such a prophetic way. And it also spoke so directly to Appalachia. You know, I mean, I didn't grow up in the coal fields. You know, that wasn't part of my experience. Um, but, and my family was, you know, economically pretty comfortable, but I'd never thought about what it means to be from this region until reading that. You know, I, I never thought about, um, yeah, I just never thought of it in those ways. And I connected sort of a passion for social justice with my own home, the place that I belonged and with my faith. And it was just kind of like all these puzzle pieces fitting together. Do you know what I mean? Um, so I guess, I mean, that's the role that it has, that it has played in my life. It's been something that let me fit the pieces together, maybe. Okay, so you actually um, just answered our next question, too. So that's, <laughs> that's great. What was your next uh, question? <laughs> oh, it was, it was um, about uh, how your upbringing has influenced your interest in what you just talked about. And uh, you answered that perfectly. So we're going to move on to the next question. Um, we talked a little bit about this before we started the episode and um, you seemed really interested in it, but Stacy and I are both from Eastern Kentucky where there doesn't seem to be very many Catholic churches. Why is this? Is, is Catholicism more present in Western or Central Kentucky? Yeah, this I was saying to Stacy just as, as we were starting to talk before we started recording was that this is an interesting question. Um, you know, I I kind of gave the preface that you know I'm not a church historian or a historian of American Catholicism. So, but yeah, you know, in terms of speaking in some broad strokes, I did a little bit of I did a little bit of reading and reminding myself to see if some of my guesses were accurate. Um, you know, before the the Civil War. Um, there was a, a at least a relatively large population of Catholics in the region, uh, in, in central Appalachia, and maybe more so than is that is often appreciated or recognized. Um, but there were a few dynamics in American Catholicism that kind of shaped, um, or I guess the better way to say it is led to an absence of ministerial presence in the region. 
Um, so there wasn't much ministry to these Catholics. Um, there was not a strong presence of priests in the region or parishes in the region. Um, and a couple reasons for that was what you have in the Catholic churches is a very highly educated, um, very elite clergy, right? Who were much more, who were not very attracted to sort of these rural backwaters, right? They wanted to, to live in the large cities of the nor Northeastern seaboard, right? Where Catholicism was vibrant, where there was um, a lot of cultural life, right? Um, and again, and it was also looked on to be placed in, you know, a, a mission parish, you know, out in the sticks, for lack of a better way to say it, um, that did not speak well of you. It was not considered a prestigious uh, position within the church. And so clergy who were, you know, kind of, um, I get what's the word I'm looking for, like, you know, upwardly mobile in their careers, um, they didn't consider it an advancement to be placed out, it, you know, it did not speak well. So that was one thing, was that you had this highly educated, very elite clergy who were much more attracted to urban centers and where there were large Catholic populations. Um, it was also a degree of ethnocentrism in American Catholicism at the time. American Catholicism had a very English character to it. Um, and so the primarily Scots-Irish Catholics that were in the Appalachian region, um, there was not much interest in being present amongst that population. Right. Um, so the one other factor that led to a lack of a, a missionary presence in the region was that um, Catholics in this in this period of American history kind of kept somewhat of a low profile um, because there was a strain of anti-Catholicism in America at the time. Right. And so there was not much zeal to be out actively evangelizing or sort of expanding the Catholic footprint in America or even going beyond sort of these Catholic urban enclaves, right? And going out into these rural areas and expanding the Catholic presence. So the so that was kind of one dimension. The other dimension that influenced sort of the, the history of Catholicism in Appalachia, I guess, is that um, as, as I've kind of described, ministry and church leadership in the Catholic church is, is very much tied to the, the male priesthood, right? And the ordained clergy. So ordinary Catholics, out in these rural communities in central Appalachia um, really were not equipped to be the church for themselves, right? I've talked about being the church you wish to see in the world. Well, as I mentioned earlier, the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s changed that. It encouraged the laity and it equipped the laity to be church for themselves um, and in their communities. Um, that was not something that was on people's radar or in people's minds in you know, in the uh, 18th or early 19th century, or I mean, even until, even in you know, the lifetime of my parents, even, you know, it was a very new idea. So what ended up happening was the Catholics sought other opportunities to fulfill their own sort of spiritual lives, right? Um, and in particular, it was the Methodist and Baptist traditions that were very prominent in the region during that period that many Catholics started to look to. There were a few exceptions, um, diocese of Wheeling, um, the Diocese of Covington in Kentucky were a couple exceptions to this. Um, so, you know, when it also what ended up happening was there were local church traditions that started to take root in the Appalachian region. Appalachian people discovered and invented sort of their own theology and their own spirituality in the holiness and Pentecostal traditions. Okay, so a couple things change after the Civil War. Um, one is the character of American Catholicism starts to change. Um, so late 19th, early 20th century, uh, immigrants from Lebanon, Italy, Eastern Europe start to have a stronger presence, particularly in the coal fields of Appalachia. Um, so, um, so now what ends up happening is um, there's also a resurgent, um, how do I want to say, it? there's a resurgent suspicion towards Catholicism at this time in American Catholic history as well. And so you have a combination of suspicion towards Catholics and a sense of xenophobia that also lends to some distance between Appalachian people and these new Catholic immigrants, right? There's a suspicion towards them. The one other factor at this time is the Catholic and mainline Protestants were very connected to the urban industrial classes. 
Um, and churches, particularly in the coal fields, tended to side with the coal companies in this era of labor uprising, right? And so you have Catholics and mainline Protestants who are associated with the urban elite, who are siding with the coal companies and labor disputes, who are not really speaking up against the worst injustices of the industry, and who are more interested in sort of uplifting mountain people, trying to integrate mountain people into the American mainstream, um, some of this kind of stuff. And so Appalachian people tended to keep a distance. Um, and as I said, you have, um, you know, you have these churches in the coal, coal fields, particularly that are started by Appalachian, by, by miners, particularly, you know, uh, labor historians speak about minor preachers. Um, David Allen Corbin talks a lot about this. Um, and who were speaking about Jesus as a union organizer uh, or a community organizer and Moses in the same language. So they were inventing their own radical theological traditions that went against the grain of what Catholics or what mainline Protestants were saying. Um, and a lot of this had to do, as I said, with sort of this depoliticized view of religion, of Appalachian culture, of the Appalachian region. Um, so, Appalachian people went their own way. And even today, it's kind of interesting is that um, some of these same tensions, these cultural and class tensions um, between Catholicism and the more radical elements of the region you know, still exist. Uh, when this land is home to me, the document I referenced a few times when it was being drafted, there's kind of there's this closed door meeting that took place between some Appalachian bishops um, between the Catholic co-operators and a few CCA representatives. Um, and they were being pressured to soften the critique of the industry. Um, particularly Bishop Hodges of West Virginia um, was insistent for a more balanced approach. Um, and we still see it even to our, very, to our very present, to the last few years. Um, the Catholic Church in West Virginia still has investment in oil-rich land in Texas. Um, and that was used to fuel the lavish lifestyle of Michael Bransfield, our last, our last bishop, um, who, who referred to that money as his own money. Um, he used it to fuel a very lavish lifestyle. Um, and the church still accepts gifts from, you know, coal industry executives like Jim Justice and Don Blankenship. And so there's been, I guess, a failure to respond radically um, to the signs of the times and the challenges that the region faces. And so I think that um, people are less interested in the church because the church hasn't always spoke to their experience or their needs. It's one of the things that CCA struggles, struggles to respond to is a church that is sometimes anemic and evasive in its um, efforts to live the gospel. So Appalachian people have developed their own, their own traditions. They, in a sense, don't, you know, Appalachians who aren't Catholic don't need the Catholic Church. They got their own thing. And there's there's just so there's a richness um, to Christianity in the mountains, right? Um, Catholicism is part of that. I guess the last thing I would say is that Catholicism is part of that story, right? Um, but it's not the only part of that story. Um, and I think that some of the elements of American Catholicism and American Catholic history led to, and it's, this is true throughout the US, is that Catholicism is a very urban church, right? Um, and that is often does not have a strong presence in rural regions, including Appalachia. Yeah, I think that kind of plays into whenever you said um, Appalachians don't necessarily need the Catholic church because they have their own thing. I think that that just plays into our like bootstraps mentality. Um, and I think it's interesting that you talk about the very many different dimensions of how uh, Catholicism has kind of evolved in Appalachia, because I think that a lot of outsiders to the area think that Appalachia is one dimensional and it's um, white, straight, poor people, um, you know, so I think it's. I think it's very neat to see, you know, working examples of the very many different dimensions in Appalachia because there are people of color here. There are LGBTQIA people here, you know, and so um, they can be here and they do exist here. And I think that making that presence known um, is a really awesome thing, which kind of leads me into an ad lib question a little bit. Um, I saw an article recently about how the Vatican had said that they can't 
bless same-sex marriages. Um, so I kind of want to know how does that play into the work that CCA offers and like the work that CCA is doing with like social justice? Yeah, well, um, we haven't released an official statement on this mm-hmm. yet, um, but which we often do when things like this occur in the church or in the region. Um, what I can say is that CCA has strived to be a radically inclusive space that the challenges the church when we feel that the church is acting in unjustly and speaking speaking personally you know that this is an area i think where the catholic church and i think we're seeing in the response of many ordinary catholics um are challenging the the church on this point and mm-hmm. cca has frequently been an advocate for LGBTQ justice and inclusion in the church. An organization we partner with frequently is called New Ways Ministry, which is an LGBTQ Catholic organization that has really challenged the church to change um, its attitudes and really to listen to the experience of LGBTQ Catholics, right? Um, There's a a great, actually right in Lexington, um, LGBTQ ministry, let me get it right here because I got it right here. the, well, the Diocese of Lexington's LGBT ministry is how, mm-hmm. how they refer to it, um, has also really worked with the church. Actually, there is going to be a, a Zoom uh, lecture uh, this evening sponsored by LGBT ministry, uh, Lexington Diocese, and Catholic Committee of Appalachia on this exact topic. So, um, Oh, that's it, awesome. Yeah. Uh, it's called uh, Welcoming LGBTQ, Ca- LGBTQ Plus Catholics. Um, so Jim Martin, who is a Jesuit priest, who has really called for the church to build bridges between um, the LGBTQ community and the Catholic community, will be speaking um, on, on this topic. I think one of the challenges for Catholic for the Catholic Church, the Catholic institution, is to listen to the stories of LGBTQ Catholics who witness to radical love against a lot of forces of homophobia in the church and in US society and in, in Appalachia, right? Um, and I think that, you know, God, God loves when people love and God loves uh, when people discover love, mm-hmm. live justly, um, work to build God's kingdom. And love takes all form, all types of forms, all types of shapes. And, Absolutely. Yeah, and if, if two people um, I don't want to say this. Um, if two people witness to that kind of love, that that's what God delights in. And that's what the church should bless is how I mm-hmm. look at it. Um, and so I don't understand why the church would want to draw borders around, um, what love can look like or, um, how God can be manifest in people's lives. And so I think that it's a challenge for the church to open itself up to, to listen, as, as CCA has often modeled, right? That when we listen to the experience of people at the grassroots, um, sometimes our hearts can be changed, that we can be converted. Um, and I think the church needs conversion to, um, to, out, to a vision of love that is inclusive of LGBTQIA persons. And I guess the last thing I'll say on that is <clears throat> I've referenced uh, Vatican II a couple times, right? Um, <laughs> When the Second Vatican Council was started, um, the Pope at the time, John the Twenty Third, so we need a church that is poor, okay, um, and that means a church that listens first to people who are experiencing poverty, right, as a result of economic oppression. Um, that idea of poor has been expanded throughout church history to include all oppressed and excluded groups, you know, and. I think today in the church, LGBTQ people, at least within the church, are some of the most oppressed, um, along with women. Um, and so we need a church that is gay. We need a church that is of women, right? Um, just like mm-hmm. Vatican, you said we need a church that is poor. We need a church that is gay, is what mm-hmm. I would say today. Yeah, and thank you for answering that. I'm sorry if I put you on the spot there. That was kind of just for my own personal. I just remember seeing that, and I was like, I wonder what he thinks about that. So it's a fantastic question. It's on a lot of Catholics' minds right now. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. frankly, a lot of Catholics are hurting um, because just about any Catholic you talk to has a gay relative or a trans relative, um, or they themselves uh, have one of those identities, and they want to. I mentioned to you earlier, right, that. 
I define theology as faith-seeking belonging, right? Um, what people want to know is that they can belong, that they have a place, that um, belonging is one of the most fundamental human needs. Um, and if God is our ultimate experience, is foundational to who we are, to know that you belong with God and within God's kingdom and within God's community is probably an even more, found. it's like the meta foundation, right? Uh, it's even further. So I think that the Catholic church needs to find a way to open itself to LGBTQ persons, LGBTQ love, to bless what God has already blessed, right? Is, you know, I said before, you know, Appalachian people don't need the Catholic church necessarily. Gay people don't need the Catholic church to bless their love, but it would be nice. Um, because when that's your faith and that's your experience, you should know that you belong in it. And so I think that um, it's this is on a lot of Catholics' hearts right now, and it's causing a lot of pain for a lot of Catholics. The uh, last thing I'll say on it is, you know, we talk a lot about in Appalachia about out-migration as a big issue in the region, young people leaving the region. Um, and sometimes it's gay young people who don't feel that they can be queer and be rural, right? They don't have a sense of belonging. They don't have community. There's out-migration in the Catholic Church, too. Um, young people are leaving the Catholic Church, and I suspect it's for very similar reasons, right? That they're told they don't belong, or they don't feel that they belong. They don't feel they have a future here, and we can do better. You, know? you, you said, um, <clears throat> you've said it multiple times throughout the episode, be the church you want to see in the world. So I believe in order to make changes, you need to um, grow a, a a common like literacy of the issues going on yeah. and the things that you want to change. So what kind of educational programs does the CCA offer? Yeah. So we do a few, a few things. We have a few traditions, a few standing programs, and then we have stuff that just kind of springs up from the sense of the faithful, as I mentioned earlier. So I can kind of focus on a couple different things. One is every year we do um, our annual gathering. It happens every year in September, usually around the third weekend in September. Sometimes it shifts slightly based on, you know, our ability to reserve a, sp a specific location. And the different, different CCA chapters take turns hosting and planning the annual gathering. And so the topic of the annual gathering each year is chosen by the planning committee of that specific state chapter. This year it's actually gonna be in Kentucky. Um, it, I'm not 100% sure on where the location is yet. There's been some back and forth, but uh, so I don't wanna say something and get it wrong because I'm not sure where it's at right now. But um, just economic transition and just and sustainable economic development are gonna be um, the themes for, for this year. Um, in the past, the Tennessee chapter, um, which meant many of them are around the Oak Ridge area and very involved in issues around nuclear disarmament. Um, and so that, that was the previous year, I guess a couple years now, um, when we had it in Tennessee, nuclear disarmament was the theme. Um, undoing racism and white supremacy in the region has been a past theme. Um, this past year was uh, CCA's 50th anniversary. So, 2020, uh, we were gonna have a big celebration that COVID totally derailed, uh, <laughs> but we ended up doing it over Zoom. And you know, you mentioned Telling Takes Us Home. And we talked a little bit about how in Telling Takes Us Home, we lifted up many different voices uh, from the Appalachian region. And so for our 50th anniversary, we had a series of member led workshops highlighting all those many voices. So we had a workshop on LGBTQ church justice um, we had a workshop on white, undoing white supremacy. We had one on being a decolonized ally. We had issues of addiction were addressed. So every year, that's kind of one of our, that's an opportunity for all of our chapters, all of our people to come together, to learn together, to share the work that we're doing. You mentioned that you have to have a common language and some common work. Well, you know, it's not us, again, it's not us, CCA, trying to do, do something for people. It's the people who are involved with CCA sharing what they're already doing and connecting with others who might have questions or who want to learn uh, or who are doing the same thing. CCA, again, is a network, right? Um, so that's one thing. Um, every year we also do um, 
the Cherokee Spirituality Retreat, which takes place in North Carolina. Um, it is led and facilitated by um, enrolled Eastern Band Cherokee folks. Um, so again, it comes from people who are connected to that issue directly. It's not people who are not tied to that issue speaking on it, but it happens in collaboration. Um, another couple other, a regular thing that we do to educate, and you could jump on our website and look at this, but we compose statements, resolutions, responses, to major issues that are happening in the church, major issues that are happening in our nation or our world or in the region. Um, when we had the, the teachers strikes in, in West Virginia, a few years back, CCA released a statement of solidarity with striking teachers and other state workers. Um, you know, with when the riots happened on the Capitol earlier this year, CCA released a statement about that, um, connecting the that what happened at the state Capitol to sort of our failure as a nation to wrestle with the legacy of white supremacy. That was kind of our, our analysis of that issue. Um, we put out a statement recently as well on the murders of uh, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. So again, always sort of commenting on what's happening. And a lot of times those statements um, are written in collaboration with members of CCA. So it's not just the co-coordinators or the board, you know, issuing, here's what you ought to think, but we're talking with our membership and co-constructing some of those responses together. Um, the one other, two other things I'll say. Um, one is we, over our history, the frequency of it has changed, but we have a newsletter called Patch Quilt, which currently is a large annual volume. Um, and it features contributions from our members on issues. I wrote uh, in the, uh, a statement uh, or an article a few years back on uh, institutional divestment from fossil fuels and sort of the Catholic case for that. Um, so things like that, um, various topical issues that are written by our board, by our co-coordinators, by our members submit things to write. It also features updates and goings on for, of our members as well. It's not just heady kind of stuff, but is more what people are doing and what they're up to. Um, the last thing I'll say is we have, well, I guess I always do this. I have two other things I'll say. Uh, the one is um, you know, we have just sort of various occasional things that if one of our members wants to do something uh, and wants to represent CCA in doing it, as long as it's consistent with our organizational values, you know, we tell them to put CCA's name on it and we do what we can to help promote it or get the word out or connect them to resources that they need. Um, so, for example, when the People's Climate March was happening, there was an event in Charleston, West Virginia, related to that. Several members represented CCA and carried a banner. Um, you know, we've tabled it, for example, myself and another colleague have tabled at the um, Wheeling Pride Festival as CCA. Um, so, things like that. The last thing I'll say is, as I, I mentioned earlier, we had this um, tonight, there's this welcoming LGBTQ plus Catholics um, Zoom session that's happening. So we have a series actually that's happening um, of Zoom conversations that we're co-sponsoring with LGBT ministries in the Diocese of, of Lexington, Kentucky. So two other ones are coming up. Um, one is happening in April on the topic of racial justice in the Catholic Church, and one is happening in May um, on engaging Catholics in the political forum. So the role that Catholics can play in civic life. So you could jump on our website or on our Facebook page and get the details about how you can participate in those. But it's a variety of stuff. And a lot of it, we have a few things that happen annually, but a lot of it are just things that our members in our different chapters are excited about and want to share what they're doing. And CCA helps support and kind of nurture that work and encourage it. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of um, education. I think that's a great segue into our last question here. Um, I, I know for one that I didn't think that my Appalachian heritage really influenced my school of thought or the way I reacted or the way I just interacted with people in general um, until I got to the big city of Lexington, Kentucky. Um, so, you know, I went from a town where I love to speak to people in the street and say, hey, how are you doing? And you know, people would respond and care about my day as well. So that's not always the case here. Uh, it's like, hey, how are you doing? And they're like, why are you asking me that? Yeah. So. <laughs> and there. And yeah. it's funny you say, it's funny hearing you like say that in reference to Lexington, 
because I lived in Lexington for about a year and you know, I felt totally at home. I mean, I, Wheeling is yeah. maybe a little bit bigger, um, yeah. but, but when I moved, I lived in Boston for four years and then I've been in Philadelphia for the last three years. And let me tell you what you're saying, <laughs> if you think it's bad in Lexington, try Boston, you know, people are like, yeah, you're going to buy something. <laughs> yeah. What if I, Billy, what if we get hate mail for my comment just then? That would be so funny. Uh, <laughs> Hey, Lexington a, is a lovely town. Love, Lexington. It really is. And, it was Boston, know, but it's different. <laughs> yeah, it really is. And so I guess it's just like that small town in Eastern Kentucky, you know, everybody knows everybody. The person that I'm talking to on the street probably knows my grandmother and oh. my social security number. Like, it's fine. You I know, would like to say that we were in a podcast episode one time, and I can't remember who it was with, but Stacy was on her front porch in Hazard. Yeah. Some person just came well, up and started talking. So, funny story. <laughs> funny story. So Wheeling, to prove that Wheeling is not too different than Hazard, okay? Uh, so uh, I won't use names or anything, but somebody who come to Villanova, a graduate student, I was introduced to because they were also from Wheeling. Um, mm-hmm. And we had also gone, we had gone, ended up finding out we also went to one of the same schools. Well, they tell me their name and all this. And I said, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So I says to my mom, I says, um, hey, mom, you know anybody by this name? And my mom says, oh, yeah, they were our interior decorator. I know her, you know, everybody, everybody. And we, one of my best friends growing up, um, years later, we discovered we were like distant cousins as well. <laughs> so like it's all at Appalachia, man. Everybody is either knows each other (laughs) it's really wild my boss I work at Starbucks my boss um I knew that he was from Hazard he told me that in his inter in my interview um and we had been working together for almost a year and I said something about Heiner Mountain which is like this place uh in Perry County where my grandma lives he was like you know where that is and I was like yeah, my grandma lives there. And he was like, who's your grandma? And his grandma is neighbors with my grandma. Yep. And we didn't even know it until like a year later. So yeah, That's yeah. It. It's something about Appalachia and the, <laughs> the small town close knitness of it all. Um, so, you know, moving into our last question, speaking of education, how does your knowledge of Appalachia influence your teachings on Villanova University's campus? Because I know that you're um, a campus minister there. So how do you deal with like social issues on a college campus? Do y'all have a lot of protesters? What is the atmosphere there like? Yeah. Oh, this is, this. yeah, this is a good question. You know, I, there's, so there's, there's two parts to it, right? Is, you know, how I approach it in my specific role on campus, but then this larger question of social justice work on a college campus. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, for number one is, you know, I run this program, Service and Immersion Trips, right? You know, would, you know in a previous iteration used to be called Mission Trips back in the day, right? And it is, I mean, and Appalachia is home to a lot of these kinds of trips or organizations, right? Um, that are, you know, for lack of a better way of saying it, sort of the do-gooder mentality, right? And sort of the savior complex of, oh, we're going to kind of, we're going to go in and help the poor folks that can't help themselves you know, and that's been kind of the history of those types of trips. And, you know, one of my passions for it, and I guess the reason that, you know, these types of things is something I care about is I've experienced them from both sides, right? Um, I've seen the vans come into Appalachia. Um, I've met students and I've represented CCA to student groups uh, who are coming Mm -hmm. from outside. Um, Now I've also sent groups into Appalachia and into other places that are so-called sort of marginalized places. Um, So one of the things that I try to instill in students and where I see it that I can make change is shifting that narrative, right? Of of when students enter into relationship with other communities um, is doing so in a way that is interested in sharing power, right? and the goal isn't even so much that um, I also don't like the mentality that, oh, when I go there, I learn so much more from them than I, than I could ever give. You know, I think that's also kind of just disingenuous and a way to sort of pat yourself on the back for like, oh, I'm going to go and listen to the poor people who nobody else will listen to. You right. know, 
I think that that's equally problematic, but I think the goal is that we need to recognize that all places are interconnected and that injustice in uh, Appalachia is made possible by privilege among students on Villanova's campus, right? And that what we're trying to do together is imagine a different way of being connected and asking what that entails. And so I think some of it involves sort of critically interrogating our motivations for, for going into a region like Appalachia, critically um, interrogating um, how we view ourselves and how we view our relationship to these places and to try to build a more just um, network or more just structures and systems becomes one of the goals. How do, how do we shift power? How do we redistribute power? So I asked the same question um, to students in, for their lives on campus, right? Um, is, um, you know, how do I, as a campus minister, support student agency on campus? Um, I try to, co everything I do, I, as much as possible, try to co-construct it with students um, so that students can, I don't want students just to come to my program or to Villanova as consumers, right? Um, but I want them to be producers, users, creators of knowledge, um, to encourage them to claim power on campus, to hold the university accountable, um, mm -hmm. to, to make their university a more just space, a space that is more accessible, not a space that is more inclusive, right? Because um, that kind of reinforces sort of an assimilationist mentality, right? Where we're just going to assimilate, you know, those on the margins to the dominant structures. I don't think that's the goal of the university. I think the goal of student power is to transform what the university looks like, how it operates and who has access to it. So if I can give Appalachian communities or other partners that I work with access to some of the resources of the university through these partnerships when I send students, um, not, not sending experts their way, um, but giving, that, giving experts in these communities access to the resources of the university for themselves and for their own work. Um, and to do the same for students on this campus, we just had, I just ho hosted, I had the privilege of helping a group of students organize a student activist convening, um, which we, we ended up having to do it over Zoom, um, but it brought student activists together to um, ask themselves some of these types of questions sort of outside of the gaze of the, university administration, right? Uh, so I think for me, the, that's the goal, right? Is to transform our relationships, to transform our structures. And really at the heart of it is for those who are told that they have to consume the knowledge and experience and products of others, whether it's again, people on the so-called margins or students themselves, um, to try to encourage them to be creators of knowledge, creators of justice in their spaces. Um, and I am blessed with uh, access to a lot of resources uh, as somebody who works at a university. Um, and so how do I make those open access, I guess, right? Mm -hmm. This kind of is how I approach things. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I'm sure that you've touched so many lives through that sort of thought process um if that makes sense but yeah thank you so much for being here today um we i know that i've had a blast just learning about you know catholicism and appalachia and just all the wonderful work that you're doing um we had a guest i think it was last season um on our show uh crystal good you may have heard of her she's oh, yeah. um yeah so she talked a lot about how like maybe not necessarily you don't have to be in Appalachia to benefit it. You don't have to be in the heart of Appalachia and rather you can pollinate it, um, you know, and like water it from afar. So um, well, I think that's great. Yeah. And that's, and actually it's not, again, not, not to go off, but um, when I was in Boston, at Boston college, a, a colleague of mine who was in the field of community psychology, uh, who's also from the region this was, and we actually presented at Appalachian Studies Association Conference a few years back on that exact question, on that exact theme of what does it mean to do Appalach to do work as an Appalachian activist or scholar from outside of the region? Um, and how does working uh, for issues related to the region 
outside of the region? How does that impact our identity as scholars? How does it impact our identity as Appalachian people when we're not mm -hmm. living and studying or working in the region, but that's where our heart is, that's where our concern is. Um, and so that challenge of being in the region, but while, while outside of the region and how we, how we navigate that in our both activist and scholarly work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, thank you for all the wonderful work that you yeah. do. And thanks for being here again today. Thanks um, for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. And I can go ahead and send you an email with, you know, whenever we publish the podcast. Um, I'll probably ask you for an address because we've got these uh, swanky little Appalachian Center stickers. Oh, I know that you I want one. I would love one. <laughs> for sure. Awesome. And a handwritten thank you note from me and Billy ourselves. So um, uh, thank you both. Thank so much for such thoughtful questions and such a great conversation. Thank you. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, well, in the meantime, y'all, thanks for listening. I'm Stacy. And I'm Billy. And we'll holler at you later.